Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Nico Franks. We hope you're safe and well, staying positive and testing negative. Today, we hear from broadcaster and author Simon Mayo, whose book series Itch was recently adapted as a high-end kids TV drama by ABC in Australia. And Vanessa Coffey, an intimacy coordinator working in film, theatre and television, who tells us how intimate scenes are being filmed for television during the pandemic. Simon Mayo is one of the UK's most loved radio broadcasters and a familiar voice to millions who have listened to him on the airwaves and decided which films are worth going to watch in the cinema by listening to his movie review show with film critic Mark Commode for decades. Simon has also written several books, including the Itch series of children's novels, which have been turned into an adventure drama series by Comics Entertainment for ABC in Australia and the show recently made its debut on CBBC in the UK. Filmed Down Under, the series follows the adventures of a teenager obsessed by science who obtains a previously unknown element that has the power to save the world or destroy it. Simon and I chatted about his creative process during the pandemic and the ramifications of the blurring lines between film and TV, but our chat began with me asking him just how hands-on he was on the TV adaptation of his books. Well, that's a very short answer to your question because I wasn't really involved at all. Um, I think you, you have to make a decision quite early on as to whether you how involved you want to be. I spend a lot of time on the radio and that kind of takes up a lot of my time. And I also thought that particularly when it was bought by ABC, so it's being written for Australia, that, you know, I wrote it as as a Cornish story. It's supposed to be set in Cornwall in the southwest of England. Um, I can do that, but can I write for Australia? I didn't really, you know, I was sort of uncomfortable with that. So it seemed to make perfect sense to leave it to people whose job whose job it is to know how Australians speak. I mean, they had to, they had to kind of neutralise the Australian language a bit just because some of the slang wouldn't be understood overseas but I was happy to I went over I met the cast um, looked around Albany got excited about the whole project and came home again and that is the extent of my involvement. Perfect in a way though I suppose a lot of authors would would want to be a, a bit more hands-on with a lot of their projects you know for fear that it gets tweaked too much but were you you were confident in the producers and the broadcasters that Yes, I mean, I mean, who knows what the, who knows what the right answer is uh, to that? I would, I, I have to decide how I would like to spend my time, and if I have any spare time for writing, I'd like to write something new. So I've got new books to write. I had a new book out this year. Um, rather than adapt something that I've done, I'd like to work on work on something new. Does that mean that when the TV show, when I'm watching the episodes on the TV, I'm going to say, oh, well, I didn't write that. Well, of course it does, because that's an adaptation. And, it's, uh, and they have to make it fit a different format. You know, I wrote a book and it works as a book and it was written as a book. And so, for example, the level of threat in the book is much higher than the level of threat in the TV series because TV is run in a, diff is run in a different way. Whereas I think if you read, a, uh, if you're 9, 10, 11, 12, and you read a book, you expect a certain amount of danger and, and that's fine. But the rules are different in television. So I was happy to leave it to television. I also think I would have not been, I'd have been far too grumpy, you know, if they'd said, you need to dial down the danger. I would have said, I don't want to. And then <laughs> and that wouldn't have been any good. So I'll write the books, they can write the television. 
and you write for different audiences. What's your approach to doing that? You know, do you do you listen to a different kind of music when you're writing for the for the younger adult uh, children audience to when you're writing your more kind of adult thrillers? Is it a different routine? Anything like that? I've, I've come to the conclusion that no music is good. Um, I, I have this. I, I go where the story takes me. So the the, the book I had out this year is an adult thriller because the idea that I had was obviously going to be for as, as an adult thriller. Itch is a kids and YA book. Itch is 14 in the first two books and 15 in the third. So that pretty much pitches the book in the appropriate place. So I write in exactly the same way, whatever the story is. And writing with any music at all, I think, is counterproductive. I think there's something about the rhythm, even if you're listening to orchestral music, even if you're listening to instrumental music by Max Richter, which I know a lot of authors write to, I still find it intrusive. So disappointingly and unfortunately, I've come to the conclusion that I have to write in silence, which is a bit boring, but there you go. And when it came to going over to Australia and being on set, were you surprised at all? Because that genre of TV, obviously it's been going on for many, many years, but it's traditionally been you know, a lot smaller budget less ambitious compared to a lot of adult dramas. But over the past few years, I've been writing a lot about the involvement of the streamers targeting that specific audience, so young adults, and the budgets of the streamers obviously are are very high. Were you surprised by the ambition that was shown um, in terms of the production? It was certainly very impressive to watch. You know, the size of the crew, they could have been shooting a movie, really. it was quite clear. I think you only have to watch 10 minutes of the first episode to know that the production values are very high. Even the title sequence is fantastic. Uh, you know, so I think it's been taken very seriously and the, the result is on the screen. You know, when you sit and watch it, um, whether you're 50 or whether you're eight years old or, or whether you're watching it as a family or kids watching it on their own, I think they will be impressed by uh, the production standards, you know, and the acting standards. So I think um, they're filming the second series at the moment, and hopefully that will go down very well as well. And you're known for reviewing films with uh, the critic Mark Commode on the BBC. Um, What's it like putting something out there that you yourself are involved with and, and being reviewed yourself? It's strange. I mean, the thing I was, the thing I'm nervous about is when the books are reviewed, that feels very personal because that's obviously something that I am solely responsible for. When the TV show is on, I'm sort of one step removed. You know, I didn't hold the camera. I didn't write the script, although obviously there are loads of lines in the script that originally were in the book. I didn't choose the cast. I didn't scout the locations. You know, this is someone else's work. So although my name is on the is on the titles and i feel very connected to it i don't feel nervous in the same way because it's not it's not really my work they're my character i mean this is weird but you know they're my character when i met them on the beach in albany it was really strange because i was thinking i dreamt you up you know these these characters and their relationship i kind of made the whole thing up so that's that's strange but it's the book that i'm responsible for the you know and and not and not the television so it makes it, it makes you know i'm I'm calmer about it, I think. And it's often said to write about what you know, but I imagine obviously writing for a young adult audience, are you ever self-conscious that you're, you're not 
that audience and how do you kind of get in the mind of what a young adult would want to read these days yeah i've i have found um that cliche about write what you know to be complete rubbish i've i've never i mean i've only written six books but i've never written about what i've known uh, i've written about what was what's interest interesting to me i write about that um so the itch books center around the character of Itchingham Loft, but it's more than that, it's about the periodic table. And I'm not a scientist, I did history and politics at university, I'm a radio presenter, you know, uh, but I wanted to write uh, a book where the magic was real, you know, where it wasn't about spells and wizards. So the magic in this book comes from the periodic table. And that's, so uh, I had to learn very fast, you know, I read loads, uh, there are two scientists who I, checked everything with Andrea Sella, who's a professor of chemistry at UCL, and Paddy Regan, who's a professor of physics at University of Surrey. So they gave me the support and the encouragement to be as bold as I wanted to be. And then after that, I wrote a book about a teenager in prison. Uh, and then after that, I wrote a historical novel uh, set in Dartmoor Prison in 1814. Uh, so, and I, and, you know, that's a I found a story that I was fascinated with, so I wrote the story. In in none of these cases did I know what I was talking about, what I was talking about at the beginning. So I don't think I don't think that that's true. But I think they're all thrillers. So I think if I'm writing a book for a YA audience or a children's audience, you just you change the tone. You make sure that you know you you're writing in a responsible and respectable way. Um, but I'm not conscious of writing anything differently at all, really. If I'm writing a YA adventure or writing an adult adventure, the process is the process is the same. And how has the pandemic impacted your creative approach? It's been said that it's been a good time, you know, a good period for writers because obviously, and development in TV because so much time has been able to be afforded to writing. Is that yeah. what you found? I don't. I haven't found that to be true. My day is full. I do all my radio programs in my spare bedroom. Uh, there are loads of them. I do eight radio programs a week. Uh, I haven't found the pandemic a good time to be writing, particularly. Um, although, you know, I, so my book Knife Edge came out during the pandemic, but uh, I also have a problem with my new book because writing about everyday life is obviously incredibly difficult now and do you, which kind of everyday life do you write about what is everyday life going to feel like when the book comes out which will be in two years time you know i think i'm going to have to assume that there's been a vaccine um but there's some measure of some kind of bruise which has been left by um, the awful events of this year so practically speaking i haven't found it very helpful in fact quite the opposite and I think this is a problem for all writers who are trying to make an ordinary story, you know, going to the pub, getting a train, all that kind of stuff. It's very tricky. Um, so I'm writing it with the assumption that there's a vaccine and there'll have to be lots of rewrites very rapidly if there isn't. What's been your take on the culture that has been produced this year, um, kind of through the lens of the pandemic? We were speaking to a lot of broadcasters in the beginning, in around March, April time, about what they're looking for. And there was this kind of first wave of lockdown productions that audiences seem to tire of relatively quickly. But we're also seeing some really creative 
films come out there's a there's a uk horror film i think that i haven't actually seen yet but how how kind of um interested in are you in lockdown i suppose produced programming yeah i mean i haven't I, genuinely i haven't seen any all the all the films that we're still reviewing are pre-lockdown they're pre-pandemic it won't be long obviously before the other stuff comes through but all of it is from another era um when i'm talking to actors and directors they're all working on new product i mean as i mentioned the itch series two is filming now in albany western australia which is remote enough that it was, you know, they've been going for a few weeks. You know, they're very fortunate to be in a part of Australia, as opposed to Melbourne, for example, where they wouldn't have been able to film at all. And they had to get a couple of actors out of Melbourne to to actually fulfil what they needed to do. So I haven't watched or reviewed any pandemic programming. Um, and to be honest, a lot of the actors and directors, from what they're saying, their way of getting around it is, you know, they all go away, they isolate, they spend two weeks together, and then they feel they have extra uh, hygiene standards on set, and uh, and obviously that costs a whole lot more. But the films will look the same. So I think with the exception of a few of those programmes which you mentioned and, uh, and shows which will be novelties, I think, I think the new, the new shows are going to look very similar to the old shows. And you yourself worked on a program with Mark Commode uh, during the first lockdown in the UK that was all about people consuming entertainment from their own homes. How do you see that developing? And obviously streaming services have, have worked, you know, a big deal before all this, but now have only grown in importance. Do you, are you excited about the, the impact of streaming services in future in terms of blurring the lines between movies and TV? Or do you worry about the health of, of a of a system and a culture where you do have maybe you can count on one hand the the places where you're where you're watching things well i think cinemas are in trouble there's no question about that an independent cinema is going to be in, in particular trouble uh, there'll be a lot that don't open up again um which is desperately sad i mean i don't particularly enjoy watching things at home uh we're fortunate though that there is an alternative we will get an, uh, and the worry again for cinema is that when cinemas do open we'll be used to watching all the middling films, middle targeted films at home. You know, I, th I still think we'll want to see Marvel and Bond and someone in a big screen, but, you know, maybe we'll get used to not, not doing that as well. So I think there's a real problem and a danger looking to the future that people will get out of the habit of going to the cinema. I mean, I spoke to Spike Lee on the, on the film show. He said he's got no intention of going back to the cinema till next summer. Um, ben Wheatley, I interviewed him about his new movie, Rebecca. He's promoting a movie. He said he didn't want to go back to the cinema. You know, so we've got a lot of people who are naturally very cautious and don't want to go back. I haven't gone back yet. And we have an alternative. You know, I can watch it on my laptop, watch it on my phone, watch it on, watch it on the television. So we'll still make films, but obviously people will get used to not going to the cinema. So it's good and it's bad. You know, there's the alternative to the cinema, which there wouldn't have been a few years ago. But I, you know, I want to go back to the cinema and feel safe. And I want to be sitting next to someone who gasps at the same time, you know, and feel the need to applaud at the, when the titles come up. But I think, that's, I think that's a way away. There was a trend I was noticing towards the end of last year of TV series being shown in cinemas. Because as, as the ambitions and the budgets of TV series have gone up, there's, there's now not too much of a distinction between some film and some TV. How do you feel about going to the cinema to watch TV in the future? 
my instinct is to not want to do it. However, that's because I haven't done it in the past. So I think this whole system is in flux. So I interviewed Tilda Swinton for a new 30-minute movie that she's done with Pedro Almodovar called The Human Voice. And it's a movie and it's half an hour long. So how does that work out? And it's being, re- being released cinematically, so, but it's, uh, it's 30 minutes. So that's, that, you know, that's a weird one. So I, but I think there will be lots of hybrid uh, forms of entertainment which emerge out of this. And just finally, any other TV adaptations of your works in the pipeline? So there's three itch books, but I suspect the TV show will veer quite a long way away from book two and book three because they're quite expensive. <laughs> they'd be quite expensive to film and quite dangerous. Mad Blood Stirring, as you know, I saw the film rights of that a while a while back, and there is talk of that sort of kicking off next year. I mean, I mean, everything is up in the air, obviously, but. The producers are excited about the director and the and the writer. Knife Edge, there's there's some interest there too. We might sign a deal in the next couple of weeks. Um, so there's nothing. There's not. It depends how you're defining the pipeline. I mean, Mad Blood Staring is is sort of edging towards the pipe, and Knife Edge is some way from the pipe. But you know, it might it might get there in the end. Who knows? It's very. I think producers are, and broadcasters they're very unsure. I think about what to what to take up next but i'm hopeful mad blood stirring will do something because it is you know it is an astonishing story it is based on a true story so that's the bit that's astonishing so i would really like that story to get told um but we'll have to wait and see what happens next year but you know i think the as i say the producers are excited about that and is knife edge is that potentially tv or film and do you have have a preference i think i think it's probably TV, I think it's a strip series, you know, Sunday night, that kind of thing. Court Line of Duty, that's in that sort of slot. Not that I'm comparing myself with Jeb Mercurio, but uh, it's, I think it's, yeah, I think it's a TV show. Simon Mayo. Originally a lawyer, Vanessa Coffey retrained to become a buffer between actors and directors, specifically for intimate and sex scenes. She recently worked on Sky's I Hate Susie, the upcoming series Fate, The Winx Saga for Netflix, and season two of War of the Worlds for the BBC. I spoke to her about just how intimate scenes are being filmed during the pandemic, as well as how the role of an intimacy coordinator on set has become a necessity since the rise of the Me Too movement. We began by talking about Vanessa's recent contributions to the Director's UK guidelines for intimacy in the time of COVID-19 which serve as an update to the previously published Directing Nudity and Simulated Sex Guidance for Directors Wanting to Create a Safe Working Environment for Actors. Well, it's been um, really interesting that intimacy coordinators have been consulted on a lot of the guidance that's been going out internationally. So um, we were seeing that from the Australian guidance, from the Nordic guidance, and obviously here from Directors UK as well on how we can keep everybody safe on set. So producers have been looking a lot at that side of things, but they also recognise that part of um, an intimacy coordinator's role is essentially about health and safety. So we have been consulted and I was consulted um, as part of those Directors UK um, guidance to think about how we can keep performers safe but still get the content that we need um, in terms of intimacy. I see. And so how has it changed compared to what you were doing before? There's a lot more 
um, preparation that goes into any of these scenes. So we're getting um, advance notice of scenes coming through. Um, so where we might have seen previously a fairly short lead time in the run-up to intimate content, actually people are really starting to think about when that should be shot and the kind of preparation that needs to be done in order to make sure that everybody is going to be as safe as possible with that. So we're seeing some scheduling changes, um, but also um, some really clear storyboarding and a lot of thought going into how um, we're going to keep people safe. And whether that's through, you know, some of the things that I'm sure you'll have read about, whether it's through using um, uh, lifelike dummies on set for intimacy or whether it's using real-life partners or whether we have people um, who are able to bubble together, actors who are able to bubble before doing any of these intimate scenes. It's really interesting to, to see how all of these approaches are, are working. And what's kind of becoming the industry standard out of those ones you mentioned? You know, are, are the dummies the easiest option, but potentially it doesn't look great? Um, I don't know that there has been an industry standard that's been adopted yet. We're seeing things from all different channels. So, yeah, there, there isn't one particular approach that people are saying, this is the right way to go. We've found the answer. This is how we're going to do it. And it also will come down, of course, to budget as well. So I was consulting recently with um, a director who doesn't have a particularly big budget for an intimacy coordinator or to, to be able to allow um, that person's actors to be in a bubble for 14 days prior to shooting. It just wasn't going to be a practical possibility for them. So talking instead about distancing measures and in that particular case, it was looking at the kinds of creative angles they might be able to use to still capture the essence of the intimacy that, that she was trying to create. And do you think, or are you seeing a real reduction in the amount of scenes that require that kind of intimacy because they're quite a lot of work? And that's definitely the way that some productions have gone. So I remember reading an article very early on about Neighbours, for example, where they were doing cutaways with cameras. So anytime the two actors looked like they were getting close um, in terms of proximity, you would then have the, the camera kind of cut away again to, to something else, but maybe with a giggle in the background. Um, so there was the hint of what was still happening there without actually expressly showing it. I have to say, I think that, you know, and yes, of course, people are looking at the writing of these scenes and really having a look at what is crucial in terms of the storytelling. But when it is crucial to storytelling, people are still trying to make the filming work as best as possible. So I think in those cases where, you know, if it is absolutely essential and there's a critical moment in there that's, for example, um, going to be best shown through simulated sex, then that particular scene might just be pushed to, to later in the schedule so that we can still shoot it, but we're going to shoot everything else first. I remember one of the shows that everyone was talking about at the beginning of our first lockdown was Normal People. And that's mm -hmm. a show that just, it wouldn't be the same show if you didn't have those intimate scenes and it'd definitely be a lot shorter as well. So do you think, yeah, it will always be a, a constant, you know, despite the difficulties, those scenes are going to be necessary when people are creating dramas especially yeah and you're absolutely right on a show like that and a show like normal people you do need those scenes it's part of the storytelling it is an essential part of the narrative so it 
it wouldn't be the same story. It wouldn't have been as rich without all of that content being in there. And actually, yeah, you could see the progression of the relationship through their intimate moments together. So if we were shooting normal people again today, you would still, of course, need all of those scenes. It would just be a question of looking at how literally we were going to keep the actors safe, whether that was through constant testing, um, through isolation measures outside of being on set. No matter what protocols you were going to adhere to, though, you need the content, so it, it has to be it has to be shot and then we start to look into again the the more traditional protocols of okay what do we need in order to get consent of these parties to make sure that we're shooting a beautiful and rich scene as well as one that's safe i understand as a way of getting into production um production crews have obviously been reduced and i, I suppose in an ideal ideal scenario you would always be on set for the for the scenes are you finding now you're having to kind of be are you wheeled in on a laptop? How does it work at the moment? <laughs> what are you working on? Um, when, I've, when I've had to go on set, I've been there in person. So um, there was one that I did a consultation via phone for, um, just talking through the kind of methods and angles that that person might want to use. Um, but aside from that, it's about being there in person Absolutely, um, because you want to make sure that somebody also knows that you're a presence there that they can rely on who is usually in the same space with them. So that if, for example, we need to call cut for any reason or if, if something's not working, I've got the ear of the director in that moment um, and we're both usually talking together to see what needs to be done on you know the next take, whether there's any shifts that need to be made. Um, so it's, it is essential, I think, that the intimacy coordinator is in the same space with the director and with the actors. Um, obviously, you have to wear a mask, you might have to wear a visor as well, but you are on the same monitor with the director, ideally. And is it fair to say that the role of the intimacy coordinator is a relatively new thing? And tell me a bit about your background and how you became to get involved in TV production as well. Yeah, so I, yes, it is a very new role. And obviously, we saw the rise of that following the Me Too movement and everything that was happening with Harvey Weinstein in 2017. So um, as a result of that, people started to think about what um, was needed in order to protect actors um, and to protect productions as well, actually, you know, um, from nefarious activities. So I, my background is as a lawyer, as a corporate lawyer. I retrained as an actor and I was also trained in dance. So I had these quite strange three things that didn't really seem to relate to one another. And then suddenly this um, light bulb moment came about when I was approached by an actor who said to me, um, I'd really like your help looking at a contract, please. Um, so there's a, there's a nudity rider here. Um, I'd, I'd like you to have a look at it with me. And then we went through it and that person then said, actually, I'd really like you to come on set with me. Would that be okay? Because I'd like to make sure that the production is adhering to what we've just spoken about there. Um, and I just really feel like I want that support. Um, so I went on set with her, but not realising that this was actually 
a role. I, you know, it didn't have a name to me at that point. It was just a support that I was providing for that actor. So things then built from there because, of course, then one person hears that you're doing something and they're like, oh, I think that sounds like an interesting thing that I should be getting involved with for this next production that I've got going on. Could you come and help with the choreography for this? So that's that was the start of things. Um, and then, of course, the role is gaining more prominence now as a result of it being seen as something necessary rather than just something desirable. As the industry proactively tries to get more women in, in higher up roles off screen, so script writing, creating shows, show running and directing, whether or not you're noticing a shift in the way scenes are written and the way they're handled on set. Yeah, it's an interesting question that you're asking there about kind of the the notice of things. I, I do think notice is getting better of bringing in an intimacy coordinator and that you get the script a lot earlier. And the earlier you get the script, of course, um, the earlier you can be involved in genuine conversations around what's going to happen with the script. Um, so as with any other head of department, you can be involved at a really early stage with those conversations and start to shape the way it's going to be shot. And yes, of course, then you've got a more senior female person who is also behind the scenes. Um, th- there has been a shift in that, definitely. Um, early stages, I would say that it was much more about coming on the day of, um, here's, here's a script, here's something that we need assistance with, or you might get a few days notice, but it, it wasn't much. So I, that has absolutely shifted. And I think that will continue, hopefully, to develop so that we are involved from very early stages and can really start to plan for this and help with the storytelling because the the narrative is so crucial, I think, with intimate storytelling. Um, you know, I often say we, we always, we ask actors to think about how they walk, um, how, they, um, how they move as a particular character, um, how they speak, but we don't ever really talk to them about their intimate lives. And that, of course, is such a huge part of what we do as humans and makes us up as humans. So uh, those conversations, I think, can happen really early. And hopefully if they do happen early, it might also help influence character choices. And what's the balance like between the amount of TV and the amount of film that you're working on at the moment? I would say that it's mostly high-end television that I'm working on right now. Um, Of course, theatre has all but stopped for the moment, so um, that's a a bit of a shame. With film, um, film tends to be more a consultative process for me personally at the moment, so it's about bringing me in for particular scenes or thoughts on how things should be shot um, but high-end television has been really it has stayed quite prolific throughout the lockdown period. From a, a kind of creative perspective, what would you say are some of the main, I guess, do's and don'ts of, of an intimate scene? The creative do's and don'ts, that's a really good question. So I, I think it's a mistake if people go in um, with a particular choreography in mind and I say that as somebody who probably went in with particular choreography in mind um, and then suddenly going oh that's not actually how these people move how they behave it's not that they're seeing the narrative from a different perspective Um, you know so 
you have to be totally open to working with the people who you've got in front of you and what they're bringing to the role. And that takes a little while to get used to that, I think, to, to have the confidence to go in knowing you've done all of the preparation work and that it's going to be truly a conversation that happens between you, the director and the actors about what we want from the scene, how it's going to be shot, what we're comfortable with, what the consent is, and then allowing or you know ideas to, to come up at that point rather than having any preconceived ideas about what it's supposed to be and, and enforcing that. So that's one of the pitfalls I personally fell into from a, from a creative perspective. Um, obviously, you also have to think about... Um, positioning so um, you, you start to get very used to talking with the director about whether something's being shot in a wide or close up and and what the different um, nudity levels are going to be for for each of those kinds of shots what what we can get away with masking um, what we can use in terms of barriers um, because there'll be different sizing depending on what kind of shot we're going for so I mean, I'm talking about the pitfalls from what I personally have experienced myself rather than anything else. Actually, the biggest pitfall I can think of is not having the conversation, not communicating about what's necessary. And I'm talking about blow by blow kind of accounts of how long we're holding a kiss, how many beats we're holding a kiss, how many thrusts there are, what the quality of the thrust is. Um, whether somebody is penetrating someone else when they have the particular line that they're due to say. So really breaking it down and speaking very openly and frankly about what is precisely happening for those actors in that moment, that's, that's the kind of the creative thing that you, you have to work with. Yeah, it must be a really tricky balancing act because I suppose the, the key priority is obviously protecting the actors but then you obviously want something that is going to appear realistic. So that balancing act between, as you were saying before, kind of not choreographing too much, but obviously there needs to be certain things that are kind of set in stone. Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, again, that's going to come back down to the director's vision as well. You know, why this particular moment is so important in the characters' um, lives at that time. So um, are they new in the relationship are we in the honeymoon phase where are we so that's why we need the full script as well to be able to go through and kind of together with the director mark out the moments of okay where are we at in the the intimate arc if you like of what the character is experiencing and then you can work backwards from there to to go into the the choreography and just finally, I suppose if you were looking at some case studies in, in the recent past, what would you say are some of the kind of best examples of intimate scenes? Well, obviously, you've already raised normal people. I think that was a really good example. Um, I really liked Brave New World and the way that it was managed, the intimate scenes were managed on that show. It was gorgeous. You know, it was being shot and you could tell, I think, that the actors seemed very safe within that. There was um, a lot of creativity within that. I May Destroy You was also really gorgeous with what it was able to achieve. I think Michaela Cole is just an incredible performer, writer. You know, she's just wonderful. So 
there was a real depth to that work and it was very dangerous too I, and, and obviously explores exactly what we're talking about today, which is consent. Vanessa Coffey. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast soon, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and on social media. Thanks for listening.